Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you, Team Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much, as always, for joining. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. We have... Updates. We'll get into them in just a moment here on everything happening uh, with Hurricane Harvey down in Texas and Louisiana. Um, we also have some policy uh, policy updates and issues to get to, including the expectation that uh, President Trump may uh, may rep- get rid of uh, the DACA policy of the Obama administration. I also saw right before I came on air here the. News that uh, Sheriff David Clark has resigned as sheriff of Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee County. So we have much to get to today on the show. Uh, your thoughts, as always, welcome 844-900-BUCK if you want to give us a call. Now, uh, the damage is still very much being assessed, and we're not going to know how bad everything really is in Houston until some of this water recedes and then you're able to have the damage assessments. Um, that's what will be happening in the in the days ahead. Uh, as I mentioned to you yesterday, we're seeing the best of people. And unfortunately, in a crisis like this, we are also seeing the worst of people. Uh, there are all kinds of scams out there, people that are using uh, phishing scams via email, so they send an email. Hey, I'm I'm raising money for Hurricane Harvey victims, or uh, you have other individuals out there who are uh, setting up fake GoFundMe pages or pretending to be from a charity, and just there are all kinds of individuals who are looking to uh, cash in on the uh, misery and destruction uh, through the just deeply egregious fraud of saying that it's for people who are affected by this um, but on the on the uh, positive side of it you do have uh, many folks out there across the country uh, in down in Texas Louisiana and and across all 50 states who are doing everything in their power to try and uh, ease the suffering of those down in Texas and and be as helpful as they possibly can um, JJ Watt for example he's a pro Bowl Football player, Houston Texan, uh, he, well, he had this to say about his fundraising efforts. We started out on Sunday with the goal of raising $200,000, and we just now surpassed the $10 million mark. Uh, I'm going to leave the link open. Uh, We're going to see how high we can get it. Um, I can't say thank you enough. Celebrities, musicians, athletes, kids with their lemonade stands, and uh, people hosting fundraisers, businesses donating. I cannot thank everybody enough. Um, what's happening right now is, is my focus is very much on getting this money directly back to the people, as I've said the whole time. So 
you've got people who are stepping up in a big way. Lots of donations uh, from people, large, large and small donations all across the country. And uh, I, I believe even, yeah, that's right, the pre- press secretary Sanders said that President, President Trump himself will be donating money to this. And I'm happy to tell you that he is, um, would like to join in the efforts that a lot of the people that we've seen across this country do. Um, and he's pledging a million dollars of uh, personal money to the fund. And he's actually asked uh, that I check with the folks in this room, since you uh, are very uh, good at research and have been doing a lot of reporting into the groups and organizations that are best and most effective in helping and providing aid. And he'd love some suggestions from the folks here. And I'd be happy to take those if any of you have them. So there may be some uh, donations uh, forthcoming from from the White House. Even look, there's there's a lot of uh, very positive activity going on here. The American people have come together. I've seen so much uh, in the way of stories and uh, people just passing along as much goodwill as they can. People down there are uh, are doing everything they can for each other. And and that's great. But this is still very much a a dangerous uh, a dangerous set of circumstances for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. And you have FEMA saying that over ten thousand people have been just by federal federal uh, assistance alone have been rescued in uh, well so far. To- over well over ten thousand people just by federal forces alone have been have been rescued, and that number is going to climb with Beaumont. But what's most impressive uh, are the neighbor to you know neighbors helping neighbor numbers that are out there. Countless number of rescues that are taking place. Yeah, the, the neighbors helping neighbors. That's where you get these photos of people on jet skis and kayaks and bass boats. I saw a great a great meme earlier today. Someone said that you know we should really erect erect a statue in texas to uh random nor- random normal people with bass boats because there are just lines on highways of people with their own rec- recreational uh water vehicles that are trying to do everything they can to get into this area and, and help out and, and help as many people as possible every life saved is 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 precious and and is something that that we should be putting all our efforts toward now you have a a number of problems here one is uh, well you're going to have the continuation of bad weather, but not in necessarily this, not in the same level, but there's been a lot of rain. And so that means that the the flood is continuing on. Um, And you also have diseases that may be a problem. People are worried about West Nile. I'm seeing another worry about Zika because once the flood recedes, there'll still be a lot of pockets of stagnant water all over the place. So there are, there are health crises that will come up as a result of who knows how much sewage water. I mean, it, it is a, it is a disaster. It is a mess and it's going to require a massive and sustained uh, cleanup and assistance effort at, at every uh, possible level. Um, you know, you have uh, people that are being uh, pulled out to safety. Uh, this is still ongoing. The Coast Guard described, we had a, a member of the Coast Guard describing what it was like earlier today when they had to pull somebody off a roof because of the flooding. Very smoothly. 
rescue after rescue after rescue. I mean, they are working against the clock nonstop to try and save as many people that are caught in the path of this massive storm system as possible. Uh, and I'm sure many of you have already seen this. The hurricane, uh, Irma is churning right now into a Category 3 hurricane. Um, and it is in the open Atlantic. It's, it's expected to make its way into a Category 4 hurricane. And it is going to be hitting the southeastern. It is at least it looks like now like it's going to hit the uh, hit southeast United States possibly southern Florida. So we may have another we may have another hurricane situation um, on you know within a matter of days which just seems far too cruel but mother nature can be that way. Um, uh, we have a uh, governor Abbott saying that September 3rd will be a day of prayer. By the power invested in me as governor of the state of Texas, I am declaring this Sunday, September 3rd as a day of prayer in Texas. We will pray for all those who are affected. We will pray for the first responders, for those who have volunteered to help others. We will pray, regardless of what faith or church or background you may have, we will pray as one united people for the future of the state and future of this country, for healing and for hope, for rebuilding and for the next great generation of texas texas uh, can certainly use our prayers right now um we are hoping to get a word here in a few moments from someone on the ground once again tell us what's going on there so and then also some talk about the relief efforts and how people can help and, and get involved if they would like to well team i've been mentioning on the show the efforts of the cajun navy and we've got somebody to join us now from the Cajun Coast Search and Rescue, Lieutenant Jeff Bigelow is on the line now. Uh, Lieutenant Bigelow, great to have you, sir. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, so are you, are you down in the Houston area? You're in Louisiana right now. I am. I'm actually located in Lafayette, Louisiana. So t- tell us what you can about all the rescue efforts uh, underway right now with the Cajun Navy. Well, the the... Cajun Coast Search and Rescue actually has uh, groups going down, has a group in Rockport right now doing house-to-house searches, looking for, you know, survivors or people down there. Uh, We've also got a group over around the Sour Lake area, which is near Vider, Texas, on the Natchez River. Um, There's supposed to be some extended flooding coming up as as a result of Dam B overflowing its banks. So um, the the rescue efforts are still going on pretty strong. There are tons and tons of boats and hundreds and hundreds of people that have been saved. Um, it, it's just been really, really devastating. How, Louisiana is getting some some uh, at least media attention now as a place that's been hit by the storm. How, how badly has Louisiana been been hit, and what are some of the areas that that have been hit hardest? You know, the western side that well. Obviously, the coastal parishes took quite a beating. Um, Lafayette is in central, south central Louisiana. And, um, you know, we had some rain, we had some wind, but, you know, as far as Lafayette goes, we were fortunate. The the impacted places right now are, are the western and central parishes. 
the the way the storm turned, we had the dry air that passed over, you know, the Acadiana area. But what that did was dump an incredible amount of rain along the Texas-Louisiana border. So going going up the Texas line, you know, those parishes connected to there were, were just inundated with water. We're speaking to Lieutenant Jeff Bigelow of Cajun Coast Search and Rescue. Um, so t- what's going on? What can you tell us about the uh, your group's efforts in, in Houston right now? Well, the... What's going on in Houston, you know, there's still, as far as I know, now I have to admit, I haven't been to Houston. We're doing some humanitarian stuff in, from Louisiana. We're trying to bring supplies over to the smaller towns, uh, Bridge City, Port Arthur, Beaumont, those areas. But there are, there's a huge Texas National Guard presence in, in Houston. The Cajun Navy guys are there with their boats. They're still pulling people away from their homes or pulling them out of their homes, rescuing them, uh, pulling them off rooftops. I heard reports of, of helicopters having to do rooftop rescues. Now tell me about uh, Cajun Coast Search and Rescue, just for folks listening so they know. You guys are an all-volunteer group. I mean, wh- what kind of folks are, are giving up their time to help? What's some of the backgrounds uh, of, the, of the folks that are uh, involved? We have got pretty wide range of, of people with Cajun Coast Search and Rescue. And I really appreciate you asking about that. And yes, we are a 100% volunteer group. Uh, we all have full-time jobs. We do this after work, on weekends. Um, I am a network analyst. Tony, Tony Wade, our commander, is, the, is an animal cruelty investigator for the state of Louisiana. Uh, our Lieutenant Commander Bree, for instance, is one of the top animal cruelty investigators in the state of Louisiana. So we've, we've, we've got Lieutenant Ned Davis, who's also, he's, he's a truck driver. But, you know, these are all people, we all have diverse backgrounds. We all have, we had different interests until we kind of hooked up into this Cajun Coast Search and Rescue and became the team we are. It, it's you know, that's the commonality between us. We all have such a willingness to serve, and I'm truly blessed to be included with a group of people like that. And, Jeff, how can people listening at home uh, help? Do you guys accept donations? Is there a website that we can direct folks to? There is, and, and again, thank you for that. Um, our website is CajunCoastSAR.org. On that page, you can sign up for our newsletter. Um you can make a comment. You can send messages. I happen to be the web admin for that. So if there's if you have questions, you can direct them. Uh, but on the website, there is a make a donation button, and that links you to our PayPal account, which is paypal.me slash Cajun Coast SAR. Um, if you don't have a PayPal account, you can always just send me an email. Uh, give me a call for for this at the number listed on the website, or we have a number specifically for the the supplies running back and forth, uh, which I can give you if you need it. But there there are any number of ways. If you if you have any questions, feel free to email me. Well, we we'll really appreciate all your efforts down there, and I know the folks that you're helping appreciate it even more. So thank you so much, uh, Lieutenant Jeff Bigelow of Cajun Coast Search and Rescue. Thank you for calling in. Thank you so much for having me.
it's inevitable in a circumstance like that, you know, we're making a bit of a hard turn here, that you're going to have people who are just going to say all kinds of things in the media about the hurricane that's going on. It's, it doesn't seem that hard to me. It seems like you should be able to talk about this without sounding like a total buffoon. It's a natural disaster. A lot of people are suffering. People have lost everything. There are massive rescue efforts underway. We should applaud the rescue efforts. We should applaud the solidarity among uh, men and women in the areas affected who are trying to help out their neighbors. And that's, you know, it doesn't need to be more complicated than that from a media perspective, right? I mean, we, we should all know... And yet you get people like like Dan Rather out there. I, I don't know why anyone still listens to Dan Rather about anything, but you get Dan Rather out there talking about, well, he's trying to combine. Uh, you know what? Let me just play it for you, and then we'll talk about it. I'll- Donald Trump is afraid. He's trying to exude power and strength. Hmm. He's, he's afraid of something that Mueller and the prosecutors are going to find out. A political hurricane is out there at sea for him. We'll call it... Hurricane Vladimir, if you will, the whole Russian thing. It's still pretty far out at sea. This hurricane, this political hurricane, it's still far out at sea. It's building in intensity. You can say, well, it was a category, started as a category one, it's gone to category two. It's approaching category four. Don't want to stretch that meta- metaphor too far. Oh, but no, he's stretching pretty far. He's, he's stretching pretty far. That's dead rather. Why do they bring him on to tell us about anything? This is a guy who ended his career because he fell for fraudulent documents and tried to throw a presidential election with them, right? Why do I why do I get to hear from Dan Rather about anything? I mean, the media is still so obsessed with this guy at some level that they make movies about him called Truth, where they don't actually deal in the truth, which is that he messed up because he's a political hack, and that's you know, in the movie Truth, but you can't make this stuff up. It's trying to rehabilitate the whole National Guard document thing with Dan Rather. But you know, maybe Dan, as a as a as a seasoned newsman, which used to be able to get paid millions of dollars if you just looked like a guy who worked in news and could go on TV and sound like this all the time, uh, maybe don't make any hurricane jokes this week. I mean, I you know I don't like to be the one that's I'm not the joke police. I get it, but you know, stay away from the you know Hurricane Vladimir. I mean, really, it's enough is enough. Uh, especially after what we saw yesterday with that that cartoon, the the after the fact attempts to justify this Politico cartoon about uh, you know Confederate flag secessionist Texans talking about angels who hate the federal government. I mean, their after the fact justifications were completely preposterous and unacceptable. It was really quite a moment where Americans, if they're willing to open their eyes, see the way that. The media that we dislike so much, we see the way they see the rest of the country. We got to see it in that cartoon. And with Dan Rather here, I don't know. I just don't know why anyone listens to anything this guy has to say. That's kind of my take on that. And no hurricane jokes this week, Dan. How about that? He's back with you now. Because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. We all know one thing. No storm as tough as the people of Texas. We will rise again and we will rebuild this great town and the affected areas across the entire state of Texas. Buck Saxon back with you all now, team. That was Texas Governor Abbott saying that indeed there is no storm as tough as the people of Texas. Absolutely true. 
But we also want to help. We want to help the uh, wonderful people of Texas and and Louisiana as much as we possibly can. And I don't just want to talk about uh, the problems facing uh, those areas here on the show. I also want to get into solutions. And so how can you help? We're joined now by somebody who's been doing just that. Uh, Kaya Jones is on the line. She's a musician and an outspoken Trump supporter. She has a single, What the Heart Don't Know, that is uh, rocketing up the Amazon sales chart this week. She's been doing fundraising efforts for Harvey, and she partnered with Mercury One at my old uh, my old home away from home, The Blaze. Kaya, great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Buck. Tell me about what you've been doing for uh, for fundraising for Harvey and the partnership with M1. Yeah. Um, no, you know, Chris Cruz over there and uh, Doc Thompson, you know, they just texted myself and Joy Villa, who's one of my best friends, and said, hey, do you guys want to help? And um, we said, of course we do. And so we just did some periscopes. We just asked our fans. And uh, Chris, you know, reached out right away within um, 24 hours. He reached out and said, hey, you guys brought in about 200000 just with what you guys were doing, I guess they could see the numbers move very quickly after we started to get on board. And um, by day two uh, yesterday, they let us know that uh, we had all been a part of raising uh, a million dollars. Wow. That's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. So we're going to, we're continuing to do it and they're going to keep tallying. um, But we're doing another Periscope tonight, myself and Joy. And yeah, our fans just uh, responded to it. And it's been really great that, you know, my song, has, was charting before all of this. So it just, it helped push the narrative. Anyone that, you know, had bought my song and they went onto my page, you know, that was the first thing they saw. And Sean Hannity retweeted it last night, which was really cool of him. So we're just trying our hardest, you know, as conservative artists, you know, to still push the narrative that even though we're not all on the same page politically, we, we still can support what the country needs, which is to bind together and help everyone in the devastation of this disaster. Totally agree. This is a moment when politics should take a more than just a backseat. It shouldn't even really be in the conversation. But uh, not everyone, of, of course, agrees with that. But we can forget about those people for a moment here, Kaya. How can people join you on uh, Periscope tonight as part of these fundraising efforts? Oh, well, just go to my Twitter. It's Twitter, frontward slash Kaya Jones and um, K-A-Y-A Jones. I do uh, a Periscope on my own, usually either before or after, myself and Joy. And then I, I post uh, the, the actual Periscope link of, of Joy because we'll be on Joy's page. And then after that, I'll be on my page. So if, if you go to my mainframe of my Twitter, you'll be able to see what the charity is. And it's um, mercuryone.org. Um, and if they want to donate to another charity, that's fine. Just do your homework. This charity is 100% of the proceeds are going to the relief. I used to work uh, for Glenn. In fact, I worked with Glenn for about six years. So I was around. Oh, my goodness. For, yeah, I was, around, <laughs> I was around for the origins of, of Mercury One and, and was part oh. of some Mercury One uh, events back in the day or a few years ago. It makes it sound like, a, you know, way back in the day. But it's uh, it's like all about all, all the money goes right to the cause. I mean, that's there's right no. The Glenn pays yeah. the overhead himself so that everyone who works for the charity, their pays every the money goes right to the cause. Yes. And me and Joy are trying to get out there. Actually, we want to actually do more, not for a photo op. We want to get in there and get our hands dirty and help. And maybe by being on the ground, we can inspire some more mainstream artists because myself and Joy are completely independent um, to, you know, do the right thing. This is about the country coming together. And, you know, I feel like when nature and God are talking and that's kind of what what's happened, everyone needs to stop the fighting and, the, and all of the BS and just get behind the disaster and, and helping rebuild people that lost everything they have, everything they own. Animals are, you know, have 
have been lost in this. Humans have been killed. I mean, it, it's a serious disaster. All right, Kaya. Well, we appreciate you raising money. It's uh, great to hear that you're working with Mercury One and, and my old family down at The Blaze. And also, congratulations on the uh, success of your latest single, What the Heart Don't Know, which everyone can see or, or you can download on, on Amazon. Uh, congrats with all that, and we hope you'll come back Thank and uh, talk to I us more about all your success. As a as a musician who supports Trump openly, that is, you are, you are yeah. a rare one. I, yeah, well, you know what? You gotta just. I think it's time. It's time to not be scared. You're not alone, and there are a lot of young. The, the letters I get from 12, 13, 15. I'm LGBT conservative, or you know, I'm a conservative girl, and you're talking for me. And thank you. I love your pink hair. And you know, they put me to number five on the Amazon chart. So we're hoping we can get all the way to number one. But you know, Taylor Swift is holding that spot. So we'll see. All right, uh, Kaya Jones, everybody. Kaya, thank you so much. Thank you, Buck. Uh, team, I'm going to run into a break here. When we come back, I want to talk to you about, uh, I, want, I want to switch gears because I know you've been seeing a lot of and hearing a lot about the, the hurricane, as you should, but and, uh, you know that, that is the biggest, most important thing going on in the country right now. Uh, but there are some other stories I want to spend some time on, including uh, something that right now you're seeing the beginnings of it. I think it's going to be a much bigger story uh, once Congress is back in session. That has to do with single payer, um, health care something that affects all of us and will continue to affect all of us. Uh, I want to give you an update on that. And then also uh, later on in the show, we'll be talking about the possibility of Trump getting rid of DACA. Uh, so what that would mean, also the likelihood of him building the wall. And Columbus Day has been replaced in Los Angeles by what, you say? Well... You'll have to stay with me, and later on I will tell you. Uh, and I'll, and Mueller's probe, the Russia collusion investigation. I have avoided talking about it as much as possible, but there are some updates on it today that we should all be aware of. Welcome back, team. Buck Saxon here with you in the Freedom Hut. Uh, we've got some calls. Greg in West Virginia. What's going on, Greg? Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Hey, uh... I'm just curious about, I know everybody's donating for the flood victims and everything, which I have too. Uh, I need to know if there's some organization or somewhere where people can donate for the animal. Uh, well, you know, there's the, the there's the Houston, uh, the Houston SPCA. Uh, so that's a that's a that's a nonprofit that'll help animals out. Uh, producer Amy just sent me this. Houston, you can go to HoustonSPCA.org, and uh, they're doing. Not only can you, I, I believe, you can donate there, uh, but you can also, if somebody is worried about an animal in, in caught up in these floods, you you can uh, give them a report on it, and they will try to try to help. I mean, they'll actually try to go and and uh, save save animals that are in distress because of the flooding. So the right. Houston, HoustonSPCA.org, um, if there's okay, an animal in yeah, danger, right. you can call them. They have a number up on the website. Okay, yeah, I wrote that down, but, you know, I don't know anybody that has animal in distress. But I heard no, I know, but we, we have talking. people all over the country listen to the show, so if there's somebody in Louisiana right. or Texas, that's why. Right. Yeah, I'm just curious about that because you know, even on uh, ever since that started, you know, on TV and uh, radio and stuff, I haven't heard anybody saying about you know helping animals out. I, I did see uh, on Fox earlier today there were some 
vid- videotaped rescues underway of people who were uh, of saving saving animals specifically, and there are definitely volunteers out there. Particularly, you're seeing a lot of folks saving you know dogs, cats, pets, uh, but but you know livestock too, and horses and other things. So right, people are out there right, doing what they can. Yeah. But it's it's a it's a worthwhile right. question, Greg. There are there are people who are on it, and uh, there's certainly ways to donate to help those people. Uh, there's there's no no shortage of areas that need uh, assistance and no shortage of Bye. ways to do it. So thank you very much for for Bye. calling in, Greg. Appreciate it. Shields high. Uh, yeah. Oh gosh, I saw that. Uh, it, it went viral. It was a couple of days ago. It was a photo of a dog that had been left tied to a tree as the flood water was rising. I'm just you know. Oh my gosh, it was it was rough. Um, yeah, you see that stuff. I, I don't know. I don't know how some people. I mean, that that's someone's someone's dog. You know, they're for for most of us dog owners. I mean, I I have a family dog. I don't have one myself yet, although I'm, I'm working on that. I've applied to foster, and I'm hoping to get one soon. Uh, the idea of leaving leaving behind. I I can't even go there. I'll I'll get too uh, too upset right now. All right, so. Let me, uh, if you, if you, by the way, if you have any more thoughts on any of this, we can, um, we can still go back to this as a topic. But here's the, here's the story today, courtesy of the Hill, um, Senator Kamal, uh, uh, I always get her name wrong, Kamala, I believe, Harris, announced during a town hall that she would support Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill which would institute a single-payer health insurance system. Quote, I intend to co-sponsor the Medicare for All bill because it's just the right thing to do, Harris announced Wednesday at a town hall in Oakland. It's not just about what is morally and ethically right. It also makes sense just from a fiscal standpoint. The decision to co-sponsor Sanders' bill is Harris's first instance of publicly supporting Single payer. She had previously said she liked this as a concept, uh, but was not willing to say she supports single payer. This is an outgrowth of the Republican Republican led Congress's failure to do anything worthwhile on health care. Now, the, the answer doesn't become just little fixes to Obamacare. That's not what the Democrats, that's not what progressives are going to put forward. They will want this to be. An opportunity to push for single-payer health care, which just means they call it Medicare for all, uh, but it means that the government just pays for your health care. Now, that Kamala Harris, a senator from California, is pushing for this is particularly interesting because it was California that just, I think, a matter of weeks ago, maybe it was a couple of months back, a few months back, did a study to look into how much it would cost to have the California state government pick up the tab for everyone's health care in California. And it would be more than the entire budget of the state. It was outrageously expensive, ruinously expensive to state finances. I mean, you would have to, I don't even know how you'd be able to raise the tax revenue because you'd also have flight from the state, which you currently have. A lot of current Texans are former Californians, and also I know other places people are leaving, New Mexico, Arizona, other places that Californians have been leaving uh, to go to. I think uh, also in Nevada as well. 
So this is now being pushed, and it's going to receive a lot of uh, media attention and coverage, and it's a way of energizing the left. Whether they really think they're going to ever get this or not is almost beside the point, because in the meantime, it's such a great way to energize the left-wing base with something other than these Antifa thugs who run around attacking people, punching people, doing all this. Uh, getting people to think that the government is just going to pay all their health care bills is such a classic Democrat trick because it, sound, it sounds great. I, 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 doesn't it sound great? Let's all just be honest about the fact that Uncle Sam writing the checks for all of your for your health care. Uh, that is very appealing in concept. Anyone can sit around and say to themselves, you know what, That's that's a. That sounds like a nice idea. I'm already paying all this that I pay in in taxes. Um, so why not? Now, Medicare is the single biggest problem for our yearly deficit. It's the single biggest part of overall federal spending that is set to expand in explosive manner uh, in the years ahead because of the baby boomers. And despite what people want to believe, and I understand this because we're all paying our Medicare taxes out of, you know, out of each paycheck and you're paying Medicare, you're paying for this, right? People that are getting Medicare or will get Medicare soon have been have been told by their own government, you paid for this, this is your right, you've earned this. Okay, well, the reality is that most Medicare beneficiaries take out twice as much as they pay in. Which means that the people that are really paying for the Medicare of individuals who are getting Medicare now are younger generations in the form of the transfer of wealth from young to old that occurs with a massive federal debt that we have, $20 trillion. So all it is is people today are getting health care that future generations are going to have to find a way to pay for. Younger generations are going to find a way to pay for. Because the system is not sustainable as it is. It's only sustainable if the government is running us even further into debt. And eventually, uh, look you look at the history of paper currency uh, around the world, and it's not going to help you get a good night's sleep, I can tell you that. We are in a situation right now where we think that nothing can change, but everything that can't go on won't go on as is. And this can't go on. So there will be a reckoning, but by the time it happens, I think the Democrats figure that it will, it will be a, a one-party state anyway, and there won't really be any opposition worthy of the name, and who cares? That's 20, 30, 50, who knows how many years in the future? 10? I don't know. No one. The truth is nobody knows. Uh, but for right now, the promise of Medicare for all is, one, exploiting the just sheer ineptitude of the Republican Congress that they could not get it together and that the Senate did not pass a uh, partial, a a skinny repeal, a light repeal. Obamacare 2.0 means that a a lot of folks are going to say, you know what? What's the difference at this point? Why not just, if if the government's already so involved, and the government already is so involved in your health care, why not just let them pay all the bills? Why not let them be the ones that have to worry about where the money's going to come from? I'm not going to worry about it. They're, the government's going to worry about it. But, you know, the, the government's money is just our money. Government doesn't have any money. It just has money that it takes from you or money that it promises to take from you at some point in the future. 
and that there's already a Medicare for all push happening right now. And that uh, Kamala Kamala Harris, who is a likely future presidential aspirant for the Democratic Party, is involved in this. Just goes to show you, I think, that, that that's the plan. That's the... That's the way that Democrats believe they can win back enough of the middle class to uh, win the, the presidency by promising to pay all your health care bills. That it's just financially it is impossible doesn't doesn't matter right now. That it would bankrupt the country doesn't really matter right now. People don't no one wa- no one wants to care. No one does care really right now. Well, not no one, but people It's hard to get their attention with this is what's going to happen in five years or 10 years, even when it's math, even when it's this is reality, this is happening and this is where it's all going. What most Americans that uh, are at least open to the idea of government running their health care are going to hear is, well, I mean, Republicans had their chance. They blew it. And you know what? They're already, you know, Medicare is already in place. People 65 and older. Why not just expand it for everybody and, you know, we just make this much, much simpler than it is. Look at Switzerland. You know, the people start picking countries here and there that are vastly different economic and demographic situations. But they'll say, see, it works there, kind of. But this is America. We're different and we have different problems and different um, advantages. Uh, but single payer, everyone. Mark my words. We're going to hear a lot more about it in the weeks ahead. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Buck Sexton back here with you, team. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. David in Mississippi on WBUV. Thank you for calling in. Hello, Buck. Thank you. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. I'm I'm, uh, down here in Biloxi. I went through it before with Katrina and... uh, I send my money through the Salvation Army and the um, Billy Graham organization and do things like that. But I I had a question off subject about um, Afghanistan since we're sending more guys over there. Why why do we allow them to grow poppy fields and uh, poison our youth with heroin? Uh, Uh, so we we don't we don't actually allow it. Uh, it's it's still it's still illegal, and there are eradication. Uh, there have been eradication efforts by the U.S. coalition in Afghanistan, stretching back for a long time. The uh, poppy fields. So just for everyone listening, the, the Taliban has been cultivating poppy fields in areas that they control for a long time. That yeah. heroin then can make its way, well, through any number of places, make its way north through uh, the other stands uh, and and into the former Soviet Union, you know, into the former Soviet Union, then make its way into European markets. But didn't uh, 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 did, 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 did we uh, paraquat over over top of Colombia and their fields and stuff? Well, I'm about to get to that. Yeah, I was going to talk about Plan Colombia. Here, here's the problem. With uh, with the first of all, you've got right now the frontline effort in Afghanistan uh, is by the Afghan National Police, Afghan Army, Afghan uh, security forces. So we're not patrolling out there. We're not doing that. 
uh, at least not in the, certainly not in the same way we were. I mean, we had a we had over a hundred thousand troops there in about what I think twenty twelve. Now we're at about uh, I think the latest press that I saw on this said it was eleven thousand, I and mean, we were going up a little bit from the nine thousand, but. It's not enough. I mean, Afghanistan's a big place. It's a country of 30 million people. It's obviously got incredibly rugged terrain. The poppy tends to be grown in the Taliban-dominant areas, which have been in the south and the east of the country along the border with Pakistan. And the poppy has been very, as it's turned into you know, paste and then made into, into heroin, uh, it has right. been a very effective funding source for the Taliban. Now, this is to people who are familiar with Colombia, Plan Colombia, U.S. efforts, in that country, uh, and and if you're watched the show Narcos and are you know familiar with the massive drug trade in the United States, pre- predominantly but not entirely cocaine, there was also heroin, there are other things uh, from Colombia. You know that one of the problems with er- eradication efforts is that you, if you're in an, also in a counterinsurgency campaign, you can lose the support of some of the population, right? So if you tell farmers in Colombia. Hey, you're not allowed to grow this poppy and feed your family. Or sorry, you're not allowed to grow this uh, coca leaf and feed your family because we don't want cocaine going to the United States. They're kind of like, okay, well, the FARC guerrillas, right? The uh, armed uh, forces of the revolutionary, whatever it is, right? The Fuerza, I forget the what the FARC Spanish acronym is. But uh, yeah, the, the, the FARC guerrillas might come in and say, no, 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 we'll pay you. We'll pay you really well for your coca. It's those, you know, Yankee imperialists who come here and tell you what to do because they have their own problems. Anyway, I'm not trying to digress too much here, David, but that's that's a similar problem in Afghanistan when you're trying to win over Pashtun populations. If you come in and you burn down the whole crop of poppy. They're like, well, now how do I feed my family? And the Taliban says, see, we don't care. We're just going to take this off your hands, and it's going to get sold on the other side of the planet to people who want it. Why do you care, yeah, right? Tell that to our people that are shooting up. Well, well I'm, not, I'm not making that case. I'm just saying this is what is said to villagers, whether we're talking about Colombia or in Afghanistan, by insurgent forces that are making money off the drug trade. I also should tell you, David, that there was a time when vast majority of at least the the estimates were vast majority of heroin was coming from poppy grown in afghanistan the cartels mexican drug cartels have actually figured out there's quite a demand in this country and so a lot of uh heroin's coming over our border and it's being grown uh in mexico and south so that's that's a big change uh and you know the estimates on this i should note are always pretty general because we don't have you know we don't have great info on the global i'm sorry i'm not trying to talk over you david what are you saying i'd rather pay the farmers than the politicians we send big sacks of money to it's it's insanity um i'm kind of miss what are you what are you telling me now i'd rather pay the poppy guys that are out of work to feed their family than to pay the politicians that keep all this going yeah, I mean, there's there's a uh, th- this is a big problem. I mean, one of the things, and David, thank you for calling in from uh, from Mississippi with a, an interesting uh, interesting query that I was not expecting to get today on the show. I, I don't know. No one else seems to care about the fact that the that the Venezuelan government. I shouldn't say no one else cares, but it's certainly not getting very much attention that the Venezuelan government is, according to our own Treasury Department, got some narco traffickers running it. 
Once a, once a government is so corrupt and is doing all this stuff, law-breaking, using brute force, you know, once they've gone bad, they might as well get rich and be bad, right? If, if you're the, the uh, vice president of Venezuela and, and you've already broken bad, you know, you've already gone bad, I, you know, why not, why not go the full Walter White route for uh, friends of your friend, or, uh, not friends, for followers of the show, you know, who like Breaking Bad? Um, go the full Heisenberg, right? Is it, wasn't his name Walter White? Am I missing? Yeah, Walter White. Thank you. Go full Heisenberg. Make a lot of cash is what I'm trying to say. You're, you're already, you're already going to get, uh, sanctioned and you might try, you might get extradited if a decent government ever really comes into power in your own country. So, uh, the, the amount of money that can be made in the drug trade is so, so vast and so quick and easy that for Venezuelan government officials, for certainly the Taliban, you think the Taliban cares how they're making money? For them, it's it's all complete. They're just poisoning infidels because the, it's you know. Although there are heroin problems in inside of Afghanistan too, which people don't often talk about, uh, but they they view it as oh no, we're just going to poison infidels on the other side of the planet, and we're going to fund our glorious jihad and have you know shiny new AK forty sevens for our mujahideen because we're we're growing these plants here which grow well in some parts of Afghanistan. So um, anyway, that was see. I find this fascinating, interesting question, but I I know that not really tied to the news of the day. I, I do want to talk to you about this report up on Fox uh, Fox News. This is a big deal if it's true, and it will be an issue that we return to it because it, it is tied into many other things. Here's the story up on Fox. Comey began drafting exoneration statement before interviewing Clinton. Senators say. Just to follow up to our our caller there before, um, what I said, I I wanted to check the numbers on it. Everything I said was correct, not to pat myself on the back, but it it is, in fact, the case that Mexican, I guess I just did pat myself on the back. Yay me. That was supposed to be kind of a yee-haw, and it just sort of came out like mumbled. I don't know what was wrong with me there. That was a (laughs) I've got to do a better job of of expressing my excitement at getting something right. Uh, Mexican cartels, according to the Washington Post... In 2014, uh, smuggled a quarter million pounds of heroin, 250,000 pounds of heroin in the United States. And the cultivation of heroin in uh, Colombia and um, in Mexico and probably some other countries in South America that we don't have great visibility into uh, has skyrocketed. Uh, So... That's that is happening. Mexico is Mexico is the transport hub for a vast quantity of heroin in the United States. And then also you have in Afghanistan, which at one point was estimated to produce 90 percent of the world's opium in Afghanistan. And if you look at a at a heat map that shows the the density of where they find cultivation of of poppies in Afghanistan, it's amazing because it really correlates with. Taliban areas of control and areas where there's a disproportionate amount of violence even compared to the rest of Afghanistan, like Helmand province, Kandahar province, uh, I think Nangar is on there. Um, Nangar is actually a beautiful place this time of year. Uh, so where was I? Oh, yes. Fox News. And so now whoop, switching gears. Fox News. Fox News. Um, this is what the story is. 
Then FBI Director James Comey began draft a statement exonerating Hillary Clinton into the in the investigation into her private email use before interviewing key witnesses, including Clinton herself. Two Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee said Thursday. Conclusion first, fact gathering second. That's no way to run an investigation. Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and South Carolina South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham wrote in a letter this week to the FBI. The FBI should be held to a higher standard than that, especially in a matter of such great public interest and controversy. Uh, Grassley and Graham said they learned about Comey's draft exoneration statement after reviewing transcripts of interviews with top. Comey aides. According to the unredacted portions of the transcripts, it appears that in April or early May of 2016, Mr. Comey had already decided he would issue a statement exonerating Secretary Clinton. This was long before FBI agents finished their work. Now, this is not whataboutism. This is not, oh, Hillary's not president. I know, it's so sad. What happened? I mean, this is not being, oh, in the conservative echo chamber, let's talk about Hillary's emails, more on Hillary's emails. This matters a whole lot because when you have on the one hand the, and I'll, I'll be talking more about this later on the show, the Mueller probe into Trump where it's starting to look like the fix is in against Trump from the special counsel. And then on the other side of it with the DOJ, it seems like the fix was in for Hillary to give her cover from the get-go. How can anyone have faith in the justice system anymore, particularly at the federal level? How can anyone have faith in the Department of Justice if, if that's what happened? And I should note, I think that is what happened. I think they were never going to bring charges against Hillary Clinton. They decided that it was a political question that they would not solve through the courts and that the election would be the determining factor in Hillary Clinton's fate, not a criminal proceeding. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Hillary had no special immunity because she's a presidential candidate. Hillary had no special immunity because, or she at least shouldn't have, and I think in a sense she did, but she wasn't supposed to be treated differently because she was a former Secretary of State. I, I, are we, what are we to think? That these, these senators, yeah, I know they're Republicans, but were, are they lying? I don't think they're lying. So if they're not lying, we're finding out that Comey wasn't waiting for the end of the investigation. The decision was already made. The decision was made all along. I mean, you should have seen the faces of people when I was over at CNN. And I always loved it, too. I I would sit on these panels at CNN sometimes, and they would have other guests who would start to try to lecture me on how, you know, there were no classification markings on Hillary's documents, so it doesn't matter. I'm like, well, I actually had a... Uh, top secret security clearance. So I don't know why it is that you think you're going to lecture me as somebody who has no idea what the laws or regulations or culture around classified is. Uh, but it doesn't matter if they weren't marked. I was saying, and now we all know this, but I was saying that, they're, oh, excuse me, Mr. Like, there's no classification markings on there, but, you know, sorry. <laughs> he thinks he thinks it can still be illegal. He doesn't know anything. Actually, I was right all along. And... That the FBI, which I should note, not look, I, I have friends. I have friends who are FBI. I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, your 
standard FBI field agent. They're doing in- incredibly important work, and they're patriots, and they're good people. But I should also note that, you know, that, and this is, this is more a DOJ thing than an FBI thing. This is at the prosecutorial level uh, more than anything else. That's why when Comey decided to pretend to be a prosecutor and give that bizarre press conference and say that they won't that they don't think anyone should bring charges, that no reasonable prosecutor would bring charges. I saw reasonable prosecutors going on TV like the day after saying, uh, actually, I would have brought charges. So I don't know who this Comey guy thinks he is. But I, I really I he's been St. Comey all along in his own mind. I, and it's. All you need to know is the media was, oh, Comey, he's so amazing, he's so honest. And then he, you know, stands up for Hillary, and then he raises the email investigation a few days before, oh, he's the worst ever, you know, it's just all, it's so obvious, right? The hypocrisy is just, you you choke on the hypocrisy, it's everywhere. But now you start to see also how people don't want to hear about how, you know, oh, it's all about the, the Mueller probe is all about the integrity of our elections. And uh, Mueller was the FBI director. He's so trustworthy. You know, he's the most honest guy in the country and he's just going to do what's right. Um, why did why did Hillary get a pass? But an active sitting president is I don't even think getting a pass. I, I think he's he's getting uh, set. He, he I don't know. Look, I don't know yet, but I, I'm concerned that he may be in the process of being set up, that they're going after him. There are so many people who lost powerful jobs, lost influence, and as we see from Democrats across across the country, kind of lost their minds because Trump won this election. I don't think that uh, they're willing to ever let this go, and, and they want they want payback. And they think they can get it through the courts. That, that, uh, telling that they don't think they're even going to get it at the ballot box. They can keep running all these stories about how oh, people hate, you know, people hate Trump so much and everything else. Yeah, but Trump might win re-election at this point because uh, despite everything that's been going on, what do the Democrats offer? You know, I had a friend who recently said to me that whenever you think about what's going on with Trump, You need to keep in mind that we are in the middle of a culture war and that given what the Democrats and the progressives have been pushing in recent years, I mean, it is metaphorically speaking time to fix bayonets. I mean, it is time to dig in here uh, because the country is changing. It is being changed. It is heading down a path towards statism. It is heading down a path towards the elimination of individual freedoms and and individual rights all for the supposed benefit of the collective we're becoming a country instead of individuals of various collectivists all fighting it out and republicans who stand up and want to have very uh erudite discussions about the tax code and about the budget projections from 15 years from now and everything else don't seem to understand that for a, for a lot of folks across the country, it's really about their, day, the, their day-to-day lives and what's acceptable for them to say and how they feel about their country, how they feel, how they're forced to feel about their own beliefs. That can matter more to people. It does matter more to a lot of people than whether they're paying a, you know, a tax rate of 25 or 24 or 23 percent or whatever it is. Um, our our fight right now about 
the culture in this country. This is why this is why there's so much resonance when we talk about erasing history and the battles over all kinds of monuments. Now I'm talking about Columbus Day later. Columbus statue was vandalized here in New York City. I mean, this is this is crazy. It's out of control. People want to feel an attachment to their country and to its culture, and they don't want it to be destroyed. They don't want it to be changed into something else by the radical few. And when the Department of Justice starts to look more and more like it is just another instrument of progressive transformation, we have big problems. And that Hillary may have never really been in any legal jeopardy, given what she did, would undermine the... I don't ever want to hear again. If this is true, I don't ever want to hear about how Comey's so honest. Oh, he's America's most trusted public servant. Because if he had already made the decision before this investigation was over that that he was going to stand in front of the American people and say that no one should charge Hillary, which was bizarre, because he couldn't let Loretta Lynch do it, because she had met with Bill Clinton a few days before. I mean, yeah, everybody, we know. The fix was in. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Larry in Kansas on the iHeart app. What's going on, Larry? Hey, bud. First off, good to have you uh, live on the Blaze every day. Thank you, sir. I know. I'm uh, very appreciative about that. I'm live on the Blaze radio every day now. Um, question is, you know, they keep expanding this thing into the Rus- Russian investigation, and you act like it's ridiculous. But this is nothing new. It's been going on since the Clinton era. When um, Ken Starr found nothing, he was was hired to investigate Whitewater, found nothing. Then the Lewinsky thing came, and they expanded it to investigate that had nothing to do with the original investigation. But now that it's it's, um, Trump being investigated, people are acting like, oh, this is unprecedented and it's a big thing. These political witch hunts have been going on forever. And once one side gets control... They are not going to stop until they find something against whoever it is they're going after. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm opposed to special... There's a reason why they got rid of the original special counsel um, law as it existed. I mean, I, I'm opposed to it for for every administration and every president. I do not like this idea of you create this unit that's not really accountable, but it is kind of accountable. And I, I just I think it's bad. I, I think that it... It leads to trouble. Um, if there's something that's bad enough that a president has done, the Department of Justice should investigate. And if they don't do their jobs, I mean, you know, eventually you get into the who watches the watchers problem. And, you know, if you can't trust the DOJ, I don't know how picking some other people from within the DOJ to be a little special team that is technically accountable to DOJ changes it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just you're just running in circles at some point. But what it does do is create the expectation that. There's going to be charges. That's what it does do. I think. Well, you think you think that's what happened in the Clinton case? Is people wanted charges so bad that they just went after anything? Oh gosh, I, I'd honestly have to look into the whole duration of the of you know of Ken Starr and and all that stuff. I mean, I know that the, I know he did lie under oath, right? So we all know that. So he did break the law and wasn't yeah, charged for it. I should except, note. Except, except. I mean, you know, you're you're saying that this, I mean, I understand, Larry, you're saying that this kind of happens and it happens to everybody, but you'll notice Clinton blatantly lied under oath, did not get criminally prosecuted or charged, and, uh, you know, Scooter Libby was prosecuted by special counsel 
for just that, for, for lying under oath, not not for doing anything beyond that. All right, think of obstruction, too, but the, the obstruction charge was because of the lie. So, I mean, they were just piling it up high. Yeah, well, Clinton wouldn't even have lied under oath if when the Whitewater investigation was done, it was done. Right, but I'm saying that Clinton's got better treatment than similar Republicans, I think, would have under the same circumstances. Look, I'm already telling you, I, I don't think that special counsels are a good idea. But during the Whitewater thing, I mean, I was in, I was in like grade school, so I mean, I don't, I don't really have as much of a uh, of a day to day sense of, of how that was really going. Um, but I do know that, well, uh, that they were going to find something, no matter what it was, they were going to find something. Same thing they're doing to Trump. They're going to find something. If they can't find a Russia connection, they'll find some bad business deal he did. Look, I saw this on a much lower level at, uh, and Larry, thank you very much for calling in. I saw it on a lower level, you know, even in law enforcement. When people expend resources, they want a, uh, they want a certain satisfaction, and the satisfaction comes from bringing charges. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Uh, anyway, I, our friend just brought up. I am on the uh, I am on the Blaze uh, Blaze Radio um, now live, which is great. And I was just very sad to see that uh, today it was announced that the Blaze, which has gone through, which has gone through far too many tough days like this already. But being a conservative media company is it is a it is trying to climb up a steep hill on ice skates. I mean, it is not easy at all, and. Uh, they had to. They let go a big chunk of the workforce today at the Blaze, which I, I was went through uh, days like that at the Blaze. I mean, I, w- I showed up the Blaze some days thinking that I wasn't gonna, many days thinking I wasn't going to have a job. So uh, it's it's tough down there. I mean, no matter what industry you're in, really, you know, there are just days when you show up and good people, good people no longer have a job. And I have fr- I have friends, and I'm just hearing from them now. I have friends who got let go. It's it's a shame because they have a lot of really great people down there, and the the Blaze has had so many uh, great ideas and is trying to do so much good stuff. But there are all kinds of structural problems with conservative media. One of the biggest ones is that you get a lot of major advertisers that you know MSNBC is fine, like Starbucks will advertise with MSNBC, but conservative media is ooh, you know, I don't know, I don't know if we can do that. That's controversial. I mean, you can. You know, Keith Olbermann's not controversial, but like somebody who, you know, I don't know, the conserv- takes a, a, a right of center position is controversial. So anyway, it's a rough day. I don't know if you saw it. I mean, Glenn already spoke about it on radio and I just, uh, yeah, I send, um, I don't even know what I just, my sympathy. So, you know, warmest, uh, sympathies to, I'm going to be calling them later. I'm, I always, whenever friends of mine get fired, I always try to reach out because, you know, I'd want people to reach out to me. Buck Sexton back with you all in the Freedom Hut. Uh, there's been a lot of politicization of what has been happening in uh, southeastern Texas and Houston, Louisiana, surrounding areas. A uh, big part of this has become the discussion over hurricanes and whether climate change is making them worse. It's obviously not causing them because we've had hurricanes for a long time. People are saying that, you know, the hots are hotter, the wets are wetter, the colds are colder. This is the the latest mantra when it comes to climate change, and people are using the current suffering, misery, and despair because of Hurricane Harvey to push this climate change 
uh, indoctrination onto people when it comes to hurricanes. Well, what's the truth of this? We are joined by Joe Bastardi. He is a weather forecaster and climate change skeptic. He previously worked at AccuWeather and is now at uh, WeatherBell. Joe, great to have you on. Well, nice to, ha- uh, nice to be here. So you have a piece here that says that Harvey ranks 14 among Category 4 and 5 storms. There's been, there have been much worse storms in the past. So what is this argument that's being made? I mean, I saw a Vox Splainer earlier in the week about this, the argument that somehow climate change is responsible for the devastation in Texas. Well, our preseason forecast, Buck, uh, said that the major hurricane hit drought would end this year. It's all there for people to see and the reasons why. And they had nothing to do with CO2. They had to do with the uh, analoging the uh, weather patterns that were setting up from looking at past weather patterns and then uh, looking at what we believe was going to happen uh, during the summer across North America and the adjacent oceans. And that indeed has happened. So what I want to know is how did I know on uh, May 7th that this was going to happen? And I didn't use any CO2 consideration. Um, I simply went back and looked at a lot of things that, uh, that have happened before. So uh, what I try to do is I try to say, okay, well, uh, Harvey came ashore at uh, 938 millibars, and the reason Harvey stopped was not because it got trapped in a subtropical ridge, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, one of these big heat ridges. It's the exact opposite. There was a major buckling of the jet stream into the United States, well telegraphed, by the way. And there's something that uh, we use as a tool called the Madden-Julian oscillation. When it gets into phase two, it gets very hot in the west it gets quite cool in the plains in the east and the tropics literally light up so you can see this general pattern and the same pattern is uh, producing irma and irma is probably going to be a threat in around uh, seven to ten days to the southeast u.s uh you can see this coming from a long way off you can see the season coming from a long way off so what you have here is you have people who are relying on the fact that most people do not know what happened before okay let me give you an example uh, where Harvey hit, Arantis Pass, all right, they had wind gusts 132 miles an hour. Well, Celia, in 1970, hit there and had wind gusts 161 miles an hour. Now, how about today? Today's the anniversary for you folks in the Northeast. I don't know if you're aware of it. August 31st, 1954, Hurricane Carroll, wind gusts 135 at Block Island and 12 feet of water in Providence, Rhode Island. Of course, that wasn't as bad as the 1938 hurricane that put 13 feet of water into Providence, Rhode Island, had a wind gust to 186 miles an hour Blue Hill, had tremendous flooding in the Connecticut River Valley, and blew down 2 billion board feet worth of trees. And I look at that and I said, I can't even believe that happened. And yet I have people trying to tell me that a storm like Harvey is a sign of climate change. Let me put this in perspective. Harvey was a major hurricane. It was a well-telegraphed hurricane. I actually tweeted out on Monday, while everybody's staring at the eclipse, we're updating our forecast for our clients on Harvey. And at that time, it was just still east of the Yucatan, not even back to a tropical depression yet. It was a textbook case for this storm, folks. So it gets trapped in a tremendous amount of rain. Now, let's remember that Houston area is saturated with many, many, many automatic reporting rain gauges. And so a small area broke the record that was set by a measly tropical storm, Amelia, in 1978. Amelia dumped 48 inches of rain in a part of South Texas when she went inland. So she's a tropical storm, and she's much, much weaker than Harvey was. How is it that a storm that that's weak 
1978 is capable of dumping almost as much rain as this if there's all this climate change going on. And you want to talk about powerful storms? Well, let's look at Indianola, Texas, 1881, I believe it was. That was the number one port on the Gulf Coast. You know what, what happened to it? It got wiped out by a hurricane that was almost a Category 5, and Galveston, Houston became the, uh, the big port. Now let's talk about Carla in 1961. 170 mile an hour wind gusts at Port Lavaca, which is about 30 miles, 40 miles northeast of where this went inland. Was that climate change? The entire Texas Gulf Coast received hurricane force winds with Carla. Harvey, the area of hurricane force winds, was relatively small. So when you're talking about big, massive, powerful storms, if you look back at the history of hurricanes and the hurricane hits on the United States coastline, hey, listen, Harvey, Harvey's a big storm. There was a tremendous amount of rain in a metropolitan area that caught everybody's attention. But when you talk about rainfall, look what Flora did in Cuba in 1963, 100 inches of rain in a period of four days when she stalled over Cuba. And it was so bad that Fidel Castro actually accused the United States of monkeying with the weather to try to destroy his island. So you've got to understand, Buck, when you know these things, you laugh at the stuff. And yet, what do we got going on today? We have a segment of the population that are, they're zealots. They're not going to back off. And this is what's going to happen. And you know what? If you're not aware of what happened yesterday, you're going to get fooled tomorrow. And that's what's going on, in my opinion. We're speaking to Joe Bastardi. He's a weather forecaster and climate change skeptic. He's at Weather Bell. Now he's got uh, hey, Buck, a... Buck, Buck, before you go on, I, I am not skeptical that the climate changes. The problem, you know what the problem with my side of the debate is? We should have, we should have labeled it natural climate change when everybody was pushing the global warming issue. You know, it was global warming, and then it became climate change. The climate's always been changing and always will. And, I mean, it's, do you actually expect, with the sun, the oceans, stochastic events, and the very design of a planet that's rotating around an inconsistent star, wobbling on its axis with most of the land in the northern hemisphere, most of the ocean in the southern hemisphere, do you actually believe that it's just going to be the Garden of Eden every day? Of course not. There's just back and forth and conflict and resolution in the atmosphere and in the oceans. And let's remember, the oceans have a thousand times the heat capacity of the atmosphere, and they take centuries to change. What you're seeing now is a product of action and reaction, including what may have been the mega sunspot cycles we've gone through for the last 200 years. Just where is that heat stored? Well, it will be naturally stored in the ocean. So there's all sorts of ways to debate this, but it is really not about science, folks. It's about, in my opinion, after looking at it, it's about a political agenda. I will speak up when I'm called upon to fight, and I'll bring out the truth like I just did. With I can name storm after storm. We can stay here all night, and, of course, I'll bore you to death. But the fact of the matter is, uh, it's, it's really about things that have very little to do with climate. One more for you before we let you go, Joe. Uh, why was Harvey so devastating? Was it the storm, or was it more just a confluence of factors? Houston is flat. There's a tremendous population density. It already has these bayous. They can get overflowed, or they can overflow. What, was, what made this so devastating? Well, Harvey, uh, it stalled, and it stalled in an area where you had repeating amounts of uh, uh, rain bands coming into Houston, and it was enhanced a little bit by, uh, you know, the cool air coming into a storm 
can be like a smothering blanket or it could be like something that's fed in slowly but surely to the storm. So what happens is you had uh, cooler air trying to come into the storm, and the storm did not get inland far enough. It got very, it stayed relatively close to the coast, 75 miles from the coast. So it kept pulling warm tropical air in, and it reached an equilibrium where you had tremendous amounts of warm tropical air coming in, even as the cooler air was trying to come into the storm. If you notice when storms are dying, all right, you watch them on the East Coast, folks. When you see them come up the East Coast, remember Floyd. All the heavy rain is on the western side. All the wind is on the eastern side. 1938 hurricane, Providence, Rhode Island, which went under uh, before 13 to 15 feet of water in downtown Providence, right, from Narragansett Bay coming into the city. So the entire city was under 10 to 15 feet of water. If you can imagine, Providence is not used to New Orleans. This is way up in New England. All right. Thirteen hundredths of an inch of rain, but the Connecticut River Valley and Waterbury, Connecticut, to the west, those rivers went out of control over there because it rains very heavily on the western side. Now, why is that? That's because the cooler air that's coming in to the hurricane and the very warm, moist air that the hurricane has causes excess rain. Well, what happens if something stalls, if it doesn't move for four or five days? Well, you saw what happened, and it just happened to happen over Houston. My son, who is a meteorology major, believe it or not, said it great this morning. He said, if it's 100 miles out to sea, it's weather, nobody cares. If it goes over you and it hits, it causes a lot of devastation, then it's climate change. And that's what you're going to continue to see. I actually issued a watch 10 days before Harvey. I said, a climate change hysteria watch is in effect, right? Because I knew what would happen as soon as this showed up. These people would come out of the woodwork, and they're going to do it with Irma, so get ready with that. All right. Thank you very much, Joe Bastardi from Weatherbell. He is a weather forecaster. Uh, Joe, thanks so much. Appreciate your expertise. All right. Uh, appreciate you having me here. Okay, immigration team is back in the news, and it is expected that Trump is going to announce the end to Obama-era DACA rules, deferred action for childhood arrivals. So talk to us about this and everything else going on in the world of immigration law and politics. We have Mark Kerkorian with us now. He's executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, great to have you back. Glad to be here. DACA may go away. What does this mean, and what should we expect? Uh, What I expect is that the president is going to announce that they're going to stop doing renewals of the DACA work permits because they're good for two years at a time. And President Trump has continued to do renewals as they come up without any difference or any change from Obama's uh, policies. What that means is not everybody, we 800,000 work permits wouldn't just turn into a pumpkin on Tuesday or something. It's that it would stretch out over a period of two years. And that's important for two reasons. One, it's just a kind of a more prudent, practical way you want to back out of something, even as bad as this is, rather than just, you know, um, end it all at once. But the other thing is that this gives Congress, it's, it sort of lights a fire under Congress to do something about this because the young people covered by DACA, and none of them are children, they're all adults, 20s and 30s, but they uh, did grow up here. And so there's a good humanitarian case to make for amnestying them because they really are kind of American and all but paperwork, as the advocacy groups say. The problem is DACA is illegal. The president did not have the right to do that. Congress, though, should pass a package, in my opinion, 
and this would give them the chance to do it, a package amnestying the DACAs, and let's be frank about it, it would be an amnesty, but pairing it, joining it with enforcement measures like E-Verify to make sure we don't have more people like these DACA young people in the future, and eliminate some of these family chain migration legal immigration categories so the amnesty for these DACAs doesn't turn into an amnesty a few years down the road for their relatives once they become citizens and can petition for them. So a package like that, I think, would be advisable. But the only way to get Democrats to come to the table and even some of the Republicans and start talking about it is to pull the plug on this program so that there's a certain urgency to do something. The showdown over sanctuary cities continues to play out, Mark. I want you to tell everybody what's going on with this Texas law that a federal judge just blocked that has to do with sanctuary cities. Tell us about the law and, and what's what's the fight right now? Where does it stand? The uh, Texas law would have prohibited municipalities in Texas, which, remember, are simply creations of state law. Municipal cities and counties do not exist independently from state law. So the state have authority to prevent, to, to basically set terms for how their cities and counties conduct their business, this law would have prohibited uh, sanctuary city rules. In other words, it basically would have said that, they, no, that no city or county in Texas would be allowed to, um, you know, give the finger to ICE, basically. Uh, and, and so this was the state level, not the federal level. So all the discussions about uh, 10th Amendment and states' rights versus the federal government, that doesn't apply. This is Texas saying you none, can't do this. And none of that applies, and that's why I made that point. The federal, the states exist independently from the federal government. The states created the federal government. But when you're looking within a state, cities and counties are created by the state government. So there's absolutely nothing 10th Amendment related here. But what it really seems to be is that our judiciary has become extraordinarily lawless. They are a law unto themselves. You know, back in the day, Richard Nixon once said, if the president does it, that means it's not illegal, which, of course, got him in some real trouble. But today it seems to be the fact that if a judge does it, it can't be illegal. Uh, And it really is outrageous. I think most of this decision is going to be overturned by the uh, appeals court when it moves up to the Fifth Circuit, I believe it is. Um, But the fact is, these judges, lower federal judges, should not be able to have this kind of authority. It's outrageous. Ultimately, I think Texas is going to win, but this is really just one more sign of how, you know, to use the president's terminology, how the swamp is fighting back. Yeah, this is the never-Trump judiciary once again, uh, which is a a major impediment for the administration. The Texas law, by the way, everyone, is SB4, and it would authorize local police to ask about immigration status during routine police stops and threatens police chiefs with misdemeanor charges and fines if they fail to enforce federal immigration law. What is the... What is the rationale here, if I may ask, by by this judge, uh, U.S. District uh, Court Judge Orlando Garcia, who issued this preliminary injunction against the Texas law SB4, saying that Texas as a state can't do this? Uh, usually, uh, as we alluded to before, markets, the federal government can't force 
local and state law enforcement to uh, help them with immigration laws, right? That's That's been the but, argument about sanctuary cities. Now this is a federal judge coming in and saying that actually a state can't even force state and local law enforcement to help the federal government. How does that work? Well, the judge had a whole variety of arguments. It's a 94-page ruling, and one of my legal eagles is the one who combed through the whole thing. But, you know, he said things like, well, there's, you know, the uh, overwhelming evidence from law enforcement that this bill would impede law enforcement. Well, first of all, whether that's true or not is a, is a separate question. It's not true. But even if it were true, it's not of the judge's business. That's a decision you make in the legislature. This is just one more example, really, of judges simply acting as a kind of super legislature. And it's really, it's this very disturbing, completely apart from the immigration issue. It's disturbing because it represents a genuine breakdown of the rule of law, because we have judges who are simply imposing their policy preferences and then making up phony baloney legal pretexts to justify them. And this is, I mean, this really is undermining um, the rule of law. We only got about a minute, Mark. That's what I ask you. And we're speaking to Mark Kerkorian, who's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org, where you can read more of their research. Real quick, Mark, uh, is Trump going to go to the mat on, or is Congress going to be compliant when it comes to funding for a wall? It's a good question. The president has said quite publicly that he would be willing to consider, um, you know, vetoing a spending bill if that's what it takes. And shut the government down, although it doesn't really shut down, but shut down national parks and that kind of stuff in order to uh, insist on getting the relatively modest sum of money that they've asked for to start wall construction and really repair of stuff that's already there, that sort of thing. It's a very modest thing. I think he's going to have to go to the mattresses on this. All right. Um, well, we, we will see, Mark. Um, CIS.org for all of Mark's latest research. He's the executive director of Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. I have been pleased that we have had to spend uh, so little time here on Buck Sexton with America now in recent weeks, at least, talking about the Russia collusion investigation. I am so happy that we have been focused on other things. And I promise you I will limit those nonsense CNN and other network MSNBC updates about the Trump-Russia investigation to the greatest extent, extent possible without just missing what's going on in the news cycle. But sure enough, today, there were a series of different stories on Trump and Russia. And I assume these are not necessarily leaks, but people involved with the investigation are talking to the press. And the press takes a few nuggets here and there and then conjures up a much more damning and ominous narrative of what's going on for Trump than is really suggested by the facts. So here's here's what we have. Um, you have, first of all, a New York, I mean, a, a Wall Street Journal report, I should say, that Trump attorneys have been laying out arguments against obstruction of justice in the Mueller probe. And this is a pretty straightforward one. There are people who want Mueller to bring or to recommend charges against uh, Donald Trump for firing James Comey as an obstruction of justice issue. Now, this is really uh, this is really sticky stuff because the president, just like with the power of the pardon, which I know people have been picking apart, 
They can pick it apart in principle when applied to Sheriff Joe Arpaio, but not in the actual practice of it, meaning that Trump was allowed to do that. He, he was allowed to pardon Sheriff Joe. Full stop. You, you don't have to like it. You can think that it was unethical or that it was bad or whatever. He was allowed to do it. Uh, and I think that most of the criticisms, and I've read some of them, including from our, our uh, esteemed uh, and, and fantastic friend Andy McCarthy in National Review, I find most of the major criticisms about the Arpaio pardon unpersuasive. Uh, that's not to say that they're not relevant or that they're, you know, but, but I, I'm not persuaded by them. I'm familiar with them. I still think that uh, all in all, it was a political decision and the president was allowed to make it. And given what we are seeing in this country right now, I think that Trump should be given some leeway to exercise his constitutional authorities as he sees fit. Uh, as long as he stays within his constitutional authorities and, you know, is not abusing them. And I don't think Arpaio is an abuse. It's just people disagree with the decision. That's not the same thing. Uh, an abuse would be to say, I'm going to let everyone out from prison who's ever been convicted for, I don't know, federal bank fraud or something. That, that would seem to me to be that, that's a too widespread. An individual pardon is completely within the scope of presidential pardon power. But but I digress. OK, let's get back to. Uh, the Trump attorneys laying out arguments. And uh, we see here that they're trying to convince Mueller that, sure enough, there should be no criminal charge against Donald Trump for exercising his constitutional prerogative to fire James Comey. Firing Comey doesn't stop the investigation. To say that firing Comey stops the... It'd be one thing if if Trump had tried to claim that this investigation must be shut down and call the DOJ. I think maybe there you can make a case for instruction, obstruction. But but Trump can fire Comey for any reason or no reason. And people need, and, and did. Maybe not no reason, but for whatever reason he wanted. And that the Mueller probe is having to be convinced of this by Trump lawyers, according to the Wall Street Journal, I find troubling. Let's just all remember, for whatever it's worth, team, I've been telling you all along that the special counsel was a disaster, a terrible idea, and that good people are going to be destroyed because of this. And there will not be any satisfaction for those who believe that Trump colluded with Russia because he didn't. But Mueller's going to get some people just to get some people because that is what special counsels do. Uh, Especially a special counsel that's not even looking at a specific crime. Russia collusion is not a crime. It does not exist in statute. And I know some of you are probably already tired of hearing about it. I say, you know, it's, I'm, I saved it for just this part of the show. We're not going to talk about it tomorrow unless there's big breaking news on it. Uh, but I just felt the need to go over some of this with you. So, OK, Trump is meeting. Trump lawyers are meeting with Mueller and trying to convince him not to bring or trying to convince him of their case. There's also this story out there that Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman um, has been talking to Mueller about possible violations of state crimes for Manafort. The idea here being that if Manafort is guilty of a state crime in New York, some financial impropriety or whatever the case may be, he can be flipped on Trump because Trump would be in no position to pardon him because the president can only pardon federal crimes. This is a good thing, right? This means that the president can't say, oh, my my buddy in New York who just shot someone 
is is now free and clear because I pardoned him. It doesn't work that way. You violated New York state law, right? So so they could, you know, murder is a, is a state statute. Um, and, you know, there are any number of, of state laws that come into effect. The president can't just wipe away any law. Uh, it's only federal prosecutions that the, the president has this power uh, of pardon. And the idea here is that that gives much more leverage, uh, but it, is, it makes an enormous assumption, which is that President Trump would pardon Manafort in the first place. And I, I don't see him doing that. I, I don't know why he would. In fact, think about this from Trump's perspective. Look at all the people who have been tossed from this White House. You think that Manafort didn't even make it to Election Day. You really think that Trump would be willing to take all the heat if Manafort was jammed up? That's what we used to say in the PD. Someone got jammed up. That's the term. A term of art for you're in big trouble. Uh, Manafort got jammed up because of, I don't know, some bribery abroad or whatever it is. Well, I guess in the case of Schneiderman, it would have to be New York State stuff. I don't know. New York State tax fraud. You, you, you think, well, no, actually it would have to be federal for Trump to pardon him. You think Trump would go, though, for bribery? You think he would do that? If Manafort was bribing someone overseas or was engaged in illegal activity that could fall under a federal statute, Trump would take all the heat. Why? He turns Manafort at that point into the, you know, Manafort gets voted off the island. He, he is sent away from Trumptopia. He becomes the floating dumpster fire of all the Russia collusion problems. You think Trump's going to pass that up to pardon the guy? I don't think so. I do not think so. I also believe that Manafort's the only one that we've seen Nothing illegal yet, but shady, shady stuff from. Um, but that the this is the bigger problem for me. Mueller is not supposed to be trying to find a way to prosecute Trump. Mueller is supposed to be looking at evidence and investigating and determining whether a crime occurred here with regard to the very broad scope of Russia collusion, the election, all that stuff. If these reports are true, and you have a special counsel working with a state, attor- a state attorney general, Eric Schneiderman, who, by the way, is a partisan hack of the highest order. This is a guy who was trying to bring charges against Exxon to shake down Exxon for saying that it lied about its carbon impact on climate change. And so they were going to get Exxon to fund climate change stuff by saying that they were lying to invest, bringing a fraud case about an incredibly complex scientific issue on on which we know there's all kinds of lying that goes on. Uh, From the scientists, I should add. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Schneiderman is a partisan political hack, and Mueller reaching out to Schneiderman to get any leverage whatsoever on any Trump person is really Really, to, to any fair-minded person, this is deeply troubling. This is a big problem and should send up all kinds of red flags about what the real purpose of the special counsel is. Remember what I said about Comey. You knew you couldn't trust Comey because the media was way too complimentary about him all the time. A conservative in government today is going to get pilloried, is going to be lambasted in the media. And if he's not, there's a problem. And Mueller, as a public servant that is so, I I know, honorable service, Vietnam, Marine, the fact that the media loves him so much right now gives me pause. All that other stuff, yeah, his background is great, but 
that wouldn't matter to the media. His honorable service, FBI, Marine Corps, that wouldn't matter to the media if he were willing to forego charges against Trump. I can tell, tell you this. If he doesn't bring charges against Trump or a senior person, you're going to see Mueller will get savaged in the press. Oh, it was a waste. The fix was in. He's all that. But right now they're all saying, oh, he's so honorable. He's so great. How could you not think so? Look at his service. Look what he's done for his country. Okay, yeah, his service, is, his service to his country is fantastic, but we all know the media is going to change their tune on this the moment that it is convenient for them. But this Schneiderman connection, this is, this guy, Schneiderman is somebody like in the mold of an Elliot Spitzer, just a very uh, sleazy, underhanded, glorified Democrat lawyer who... If he is working with the special counsel on this and they're trying to get some way to to put the squeeze on Manafort, it just means that this is really an exercise in payback for the election for Hillary and for all the Democrats. That's what this that's what this really is. And everything else is just window dressing lies and nonsense. All right. I'm going to talk to you about Columbus Day and how I mean, you guys, you can't make this stuff up. They are replacing Columbus Day in L.A. with Indigenous Peoples Day. They've done it in a few other cities already. The L.A. City Council, Los Angeles City Council, has voted as of yesterday to get rid of Columbus Day from the city calendar. This is in response to activists who wanted to replace Columbus with Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, which, what does that even what does that even really mean? I, I know they're referring to Native Americans, but I, I think they're also referring to people in the Caribbean and in indigenous peoples. Well, Columbus was he, he was indigenous to Genoa. I mean, what is this indigenous where it, just in general? Uh, anyway, the terminology isn't really as much of the issue here as the well, the replacing of history. This is an important differentiation if people want to have if people want to have indigenous people's day that's fine but the truth is that this is not in addition to this is in place of and it is specifically meant to be a swipe at columbus and a replacement of columbus with a celebration of people who are quote indigenous aboriginal and native people that's what is that's what is said here. Now, this is uh, also coming at a time when we're having all these fights and discussions and, well, mostly fights over Confederate monuments and what should happen as a, you know, what should happen to these Confederate monuments. And I have to say, uh, you know, this is completely decontextualizing what people celebrate when it comes to Columbus. No one's saying that Columbus was a great guy, that he's a man to emulate, that he's... They're just saying that, you know, he sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and changed the world. Kind of, kind of a big deal. Uh, it's not Columbus Day, hey, look at, this, look at this individual, he was really nice to people and was really trustworthy and great. No, they're saying this guy discovered America. You know, if someone uh, discovered the cure for cancer... But we found out that that person also was a uh, a drug abusing, you know, uh, I, I don't know, a, a drug abusing malcontent of some kind. If we celebrated his discovering a cure for cancer, it has nothing to do with the rest of the man, right? I, I just, 
I think that people overthink this, but you know, victimology and victim culture in this country is so powerful, and people want their piece of the victimology pie. They, they want to be a victim. They want to demand concessions. They want to demand uh, reparations. They want to demand any number of uh, things that should be theirs or should be given to them because of what was not done to them, keep in mind, but done, in this case, from 1492. If we're going to judge the heroes or even just the great men of the past by present standards, we will have no one left. There will be no one left. There will only be victims. We will just celebrate cultures around the world that uh, were overrun by their neighbors, that were extinguished in war, that were uh, the subject, as in the case of the Native Americans, of widespread uh, infectious disease as, as the primary reason for a massive decline in Native American populations. You look at the diseases that were brought over by Europeans, uh, including smallpox, and these were very uh, these were, were very large uh, reasons or, or very important when you're trying to assess the casualties here and, and where they came from. Um, but warfare and conquest and terrible behavior were a human constant until pretty recently, and it still exists, of course, but that was standard. You look at all of the great histories. You look at all the great historians. You look at what people overwhelmingly throughout history study and focus on. It is human relations, usually through the lens of wars and then periods in between wars, fighting, conflict, seeking dominance, fighting it out on the battlefield. That's just the reality of humanity for a very long time. In the post-World War II era, we have had unprecedented peace and prosperity and international uh, cooperation, and the world is getting much less violent than it used to be. And our tolerance for violence uh, around the world, uh, particularly in the West, is much less than it used to be. But uh, Columbus getting replaced with Indigenous Peoples Day, this serves no purpose, really, other than to allow activists, who are oftentimes people that I just think should find more constructive ways to spend their time, but activists to complain about what was done to their great-great-great-great-grandfathers. At what point do we move past it? At what point do we decide that, you know, we don't really need a lecture right now on what was done 500 years ago because it doesn't matter right now? And... All that really matters about Columbus, that anyone cares about, is that he discovered America. Anything else that he did, first of all, people aren't even aware of it. And you could say, well, you can't just take coverage in ignorance, but let's not pretend that there's a celebration of Columbus, the genocidal racist. They're just like, this guy discovered America. But now we get to talk about Indigenous Peoples Day, and we're going to celebrate... Well, that'll be interesting. I'm, I'm wondering what we'll celebrate, uh, because we'd have to go back and look for written history and achievements and different things like that. So I'm wondering when they'll come up with a list, uh, but I'm sure they will. I celebrated a one-year anniversary of dating uh, with uh, Miss Molly last night. We went out to a uh, really lovely French restaurant, uh, appropriately overpriced, of course, because that's how you know that it's a, you know it's a special occasion restaurant when you're paying far too much money for whatever it is that you're eating. Uh, we each only had 
a glass of wine because, you know, work week, I got stuff to do. Uh, but nonetheless, the tab, I had sticker shock afterwards. And it was it was a reminder that instead of pursuing this media life, I, I probably should have been an investment banker or a corporate lawyer or some other profession where people actually, you know, light their $100 bills on fire uh, to smoke, to light their cigars. Uh, and, then, and nonetheless, it was good. I did have uh, a dish. The restaurant was called Le Coucou. And I had, it was very French. And I had a dish called uh, Tout le Lapin. And which I had to get just because it was so French. And it was all these different ways of cooking rabbit. And I, I didn't order this without knowing that it was rabbit. But afterwards, I felt a little weird because I kind of like rabbits. But I, I make myself feel better because, as I understand it, the rabbit that you eat is not like a cute little furry bunny rabbit. It's like a big, mean-looking bunny rabbit, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> now I'm not making myself feel any better. And I was like, you know, rabbits are not as awesome as, say, wombats, which are among my all-time favorite animals. And I tweeted out a ridiculous clip from the Daily Mail yesterday of a wombat getting uh, a bath. It was amazing. If you haven't seen it, if you're not on Twitter, you should get on Twitter just to see the wombat getting a bath. Because uh, wombats are that. If I could just pick an animal, I'd like to think that a wombat is my spirit animal. Uh, but if I could just pick an animal that I could make a pet, regardless of these ridiculous laws about what kinds of animals you can and cannot have, um, I would say that wombat would be very high on the list. I'm talking about wombats. I meant to talk about uh, well the dinner. I had tous les lapins. It was good. Um, I also though recognized on my way there because. You know, Molly is, has a very keen eye. She works in fashion. And so she said, well, why don't you put on, you know, that uh, that pair of pants or whatever. Try to put it on. It was a little, little snug. And I'm like, oh, gosh, here we go. Now I'm on. Now I'm on the upslope again. It was a little little too tight. Uh, I've been having a little too much fun in a new apartment, making myself treats and snacks. And I, I just realized that it's now a question. For a long time, I didn't really know how to, and I, I don't know how many of you feel the same way about this, but I didn't really know what worked and what didn't in terms of uh, what I should eat and, and, and how I could, you know, be, be a, a leaner, healthier version of me. And I've gone through different phases where I've kind of gotten a grip on it and then I, I kind of let it go and decided I like sweatpants a little too much. And, and then I, and then I grab hold of it, uh, grab hold of that, you know, that uh, healthier, stronger version of myself. And, Lately, I've just been like, I just like chocolate and brie. You know, I've just been going for it a little bit. And this is this is the struggle because I know how to change these things. I know what's required. It's not like I'm unaware of the discipline, but I don't want to do it. I just want to eat. I just want to melt brie on things and watch Netflix. I don't really want to have to go to the squat rack. Because for me, that's where it all really, you know, there's no escape from the squat rack. Like if you if you're really going after it, that's the that's the basis of, of all good things for me. I mean, different things work for different people. Some people love to to run and you know all that stuff. Um, but now I'm at the point where I'm like, well, I'm 35. You know, I've got a great girlfriend. Do I do I really? You know, is it really worth? Uh, is it really worth the extra time in the gym? And is it worth? You know, I mean, it's not like I'm unhealthy, right? I've just I've just put on a you know put on a few in the last 12 months. Do I really need to worry about? And, and then I, I start to remember that um, I once. Uh, was working with a uh, a guy who was a marine marine had been marine recon, 
and we were having a conversation. And I'll never forget, he told me, he's like, I don't trust the, if a guy's over 30 and he's got a six pack, I don't trust him. <laughs> you know, meaning six pack abs, like washboard abs. I always thought that was a funny way to, you know, I was like, I like this guy, you know? Yeah, I'm going to, well, I, I was drinking beer at the time because it was before celiac disease. But this is the struggle. It's not that I don't know. It's that I'm not sure where I fall now on the like, I'm not a dad yet, but like, do I want to go with dad bod? You know, it has its appeal. You know, it's, it's nice, a little, a little cuddly. So we'll see. I went to the gym today and it was, I was like, wind, I was so winded and so tired. And, you know, this is, I look, I know we all go, you, we all go through different phases in terms of our health. And, and I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that it's just, you know that old. You know when people you say things to you like it's not about staying on the horse. It's about do you get back on once you fall off. You know stuff like that. Those old adages that you just pick up from wherever you are growing up. Uh, when it comes to health and fitness, I find that that is absolutely the case. It's about maintenance and recovery. <laughs> it's you know if you're in a phase where you're just feeling great and healthy and you know you're looking like the best version of you and. Uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's that's like the peacetime between the wars. And we're always in a constant state of war, either trying to Im improve our health or trying to fight with a real health problem, um, which I've had to do in the past. I've told you I'll probably tell you again. And I always get a little little teary eyed when I do some of the trials and tribulations I have when I first started out radio and, and was celiac, but didn't know and was so, so sick and it's also one of the reasons why I've always felt such a, a particular bond with what I call uh, original squad. People that listen to me on Saturday shows at the blaze radio, uh, because I think some of them knew I, I mentioned it on air, but uh, I was showing up to do that show for free every Saturday. I was working six days a week. I was not getting paid for that six day. I was doing TV and writing uh, Monday through Friday. And then I would show up to do a radio show on Saturday. And I was so sick that I, I wasn't even sure I was going to make it some days. Uh, and yet I just, and that lasted for a few months. So yeah, um, health is all about, uh, it's all about recovery and maintenance. That's what I find, you know, be, you gotta get, you gotta get things back to, back to a good place or a good enough place, whatever that means. And you just then try to maintain, you know, figure out what's, figure out what makes you happy, what makes you feel healthy. Uh, some of these guys I watch on on YouTube, I have to say, have a very good. I find YouTube is an incredible resource for self uh, self learning, for being an uh, an autodidact. Not on the academic stuff so much. There's just not that many really good lectures, and uh, I find that it's very hard to recreate the connectivity of an excellent professor's lecture over video. I, I just find it's hard. Um, it's just not not really the same. There is something to be said for for classroom time on some subjects. I think on like math problems, it's probably not as much of a, of a thing. Uh, but for cooking, for working out, for health issues, I find YouTube is an incredible resource. And I really uh, taught myself. I've taught myself a lot of things, including making the world's greatest scrambled eggs. Which one day, and my mom has already said I should do this. I might just. Do a, do a Facebook Live or something and show you guys how I do them. And then I know I'm going to get about 300 comments below it from members of Team Buck who are like, you're not doing it the right way. You got to do it this way, you know, uh, which is great. I mean, you know, we're all allowed to have our own version of what the best eggs are and, and what the best eggs taste like. Uh, so 
uh, anyway, I, I, I'm just, I'm realizing now I'm, I'm probably about to get back into, you know, eating a fair amount of salads and going to the gym and all this stuff. It's mostly because I can't afford a new wardrobe and I, I kind of had tossed out a lot of clothing and, and had at, at a leaner weight bought myself a, a new wardrobe or not a whole new wardrobe, but some new stuff. And, and I just, I just, I don't want to keep going up sizes and it just costs too much. So I'm going to eat less, spend less money on food. And, uh, well, that's not, that's not true. I shouldn't say that. I'm going to eat different things. I discovered these pistachio. I know this is very frou-frou. I admit it, guys. I own it. Okay. I mean, yes, I drink my delicious black rifle coffee in the morning, but I also have some frou-frou stuff that I eat throughout the day. Uh, I, I had some, it's like a pistachio mochi which is a, an, a sort of an Asian ice cream treat and so delicious. And I've gone through a box or two of them in the last month. And I realized that's a lot of, it's a lot of mochi, Buck. You might, want, you might want to settle down on the mochi. So that's where I am now on, because, uh, you know, I, I want to I make sure that um, I'm around for a long time here to do radio. And uh, it's funny because I was just telling you guys the other day to eat fats. And now here I am saying, you know what, I've got to like, get things under control a little bit, but it's not fats that that was not the problem. Um, at, at my leanest, I've actually been very, uh, I've been e eating, you know, red meat, fish, uh, olive oil, vegetables, sweet potatoes, really great stuff. It's for me, it's my weakness is sugar. I, I and really chocolate, sometimes ice cream in the summer, but really just anything chocolate. I, I just eat chocolate like it's nothing. And that's what I'm going to have to dark chocolate's fine. But I mean, you know, since since it's just you and me here talking, uh, since we're friends and this isn't going to go out beyond, you know, this radio show, which is heard across the country. Uh, maybe I maybe made myself a couple of chocolate souffles this month here and there. You know, I don't know. Uh, maybe that happened. And I was settling into my new place. I was nesting, guys. I was nesting. But uh, the little bird's going to fall out of the nest if he doesn't slow down here. So he, he needs to stop. Uh, stop eating so much and um and get back on track so that's my plan and i'll give you uh for those of you who are even a little bit curious which i feel like most of you probably are not uh, i'll give you updates in a few months and see how see how we're going but i've got some painful painful weeks ahead on the uh squat in the squat rack and and on the uh, on the bench the to uh, get stuff done um, team, as always, I am honored and uh, it is a privilege to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I will keep asking because I keep getting notes from you saying, you know, I, I told a friend about the show and he loves it now. That means a lot to me and it's the single best thing you can do for the show. If you believe in what we do here, if you uh, care about this show uh, and the work that we put into it, uh, you know, I've got Ty and Amy here with me in the Freedom Hut every day and we're turning out the best show we possibly can. Uh, tell a friend about it. Um, tell a friend about it. And if you could, please also do uh, visit our sponsor websites. Uh, these are fantastic companies, Black Rifle Coffee, Bull and & Branch, and others uh, that are partnering with the show. And they've got great product that I love. And I think you'll love it too. So go check it out if you don't mind. Uh, and that would be great. So with that team, I will uh, sign off for the day. Tomorrow will be a Freestyle Friday to kick off the long weekend, which will, of course, be all kinds of fun. And I'm planning interesting uh, and intriguing segments. Until then, shields high.